Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Hi friends, today we're going to talk about a concept in training that I'm sure goes by a lot of different labels. I'm sure that there are a lot of people talking about the exact same concept with different words surrounding it. I have been calling this concept the pre-error. So essentially the cues or the clues to you, the trainer, that an error is about to emerge in your training session is what I'm going to call the pre-error. I have also called this concept um, pushing threshold before. I usually talk about it like that when I'm talking about behavior work. I have been calling it the pre-error in training, specifically a lot of sport training that I've been doing, because that tends to make sense to me. If we are trying to operate within an errorless learning or errorless teaching paradigm, which let me just bounce over and give you a definition on that, errorless learning is just the kind of careful titration of difficulty level. So it's not that errors never happen. It's that you meter up the difficulty in such a, an incremental manner that errors are less likely to occur. And therefore you are no longer in a trial and error or trial and success as it's also called paradigm. Essentially the difference between errorless and trial and error learning is that trial and success slash error learning relies on that error. Learning has to, learning needs the error to actually occur. So you're leveraging the error. In an errorless paradigm, you're not leveraging the error. You're actually actively trying to avoid it by increasing your difficulty in a slow or incremental enough manner that errors are less likely to occur. That's how I usually choose to train. But That doesn't mean, like I said, that errors don't occur. If I'm trying to operate in an errorless paradigm, I want to avoid errors to the best of my ability, which means that if an error happens, it is at its best a wasted repetition, a waste of my time and a waste of my dog's energy. And at worst, it is just the quick road to what I'm going to call matching law hell, which essentially translates to the quick road to seeing that error happen again and again. So if I want to avoid those errors, I'm going to need to know what happens before the error happens. And being predictive in your training is always a wise thing to be doing in your training. So if I am shaping a behavior that I do want to see, I need to know what the behaviors are that happened before that behavior, because if I'm not able to predict it accurately, then my information to the animal will be late. So for instance, if I actually wait until my eyes see my dog do the correct behavior, and then my eyes kind of tell my brain to tell my thumb to hit the button on the clicker, That has all then taken so long that I have actually reinforced the incorrect moment. So I will actually click just a second late if I'm not being predictive. I'm going to argue that avoiding errors is the same way. So the way to avoid them is to watch for those pre-errors 
and catch them in real time or how to know might be that you have a helper working with you who also knows your dog and also knows what you're what you're going through and what you're trying to achieve that's a really easy way to have somebody point out the pre-error to you. Um, when I'm working with my agility coach, Megan Foster, she is really good about doing that. And then if you, you also need to be videoing, obviously, if you're videoing and an error does occur, it's brilliant because you can go look at the video and see what happened before the error and there's your pre-errors. But the pre-errors are not always obvious because they're not always the behavior that happened right before the error. Often the pre-errors have to do with the previous rep. So the previous send through whatever uh, the behavior sequence is, but sometimes it has to do with the reinforcement acquisition. So sometimes that pre-error is that my dog took the cookie super hard and he doesn't normally. Sometimes the pre-error is that my dog chomped the ball an extra time before spitting it out in my hand. Um, and sometimes the pre-error is actually just that the previous rep, while actually correct on the spectrum of what is right and what is reinforceable, was less correct than maybe the previous, the rep before that. So an example might be weave pulls that if my dog gets a correct entry, but he slams his body into the weave pulls and he didn't do that, the other three reps beforehand, then I'm going to call that slamming into the weave pulls a pre-error. And then what's important is that we need to respond to the pre-error. Often, if you, if you don't know what to do to respond to it in real time, and you probably won't if you haven't already mapped it out before you get started, so that's an important thing to be thinking about, then, you know, that's just an important part of your planning. If you haven't done that, if you weren't expecting that pre-error and it shows up for you and you do notice it, just stop and take a break. So just stop, station the dog, feed the dog, have a think. You might review the video for a second. You might take a couple of notes, plan what you're going to do next, and then go back in. This is how I train in real life. In real life, I make a plan. I have a plan. I execute it. I take a break. I check myself against the plan. I see how it's going. If I have a training partner with me, if I'm lucky enough to be training with somebody that day, we will also discuss the plan, also discuss next steps. There's way more planning and discussing than there is actual dog training, and that helps me too to avoid those errors. So if I see the error show up or the pre-error show up, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to meter down all of the difficulty, but what it might mean is that I turn some of the dials down. And if you haven't heard me talk before about turning dials up or down, I'm going to suggest that you bounce back over to the episode I did on proofing with Chelsea Pratulapak, and that will really help you to understand um, what that is. But essentially, you know, I'll give you another agility example. If I'm sending Felix around a wing and I'm working on a kind of a send and go, so meaning I'm sending him and he has to keep commitment towards that wing while I move in an opposite direction. And he has a pre-error, like he takes reinforcement weird, or maybe he hits the wing, or maybe he has a moment of hesitation before wrapping the wing. Then all of those things I'm going to count as a pre-error. And on the next rep, I may not meter down my actual motion as difficulty, and it may not be smart for me to do that. 
but that might be what's smart for you to do, depending on kind of what's going on with your dog. Instead, I'm going to just dial down all the other things that I can dial down. So I might send him, so I might change the reinforcement strategy. I might even have a pre-placed reward that makes the behavior super easy for him, but I'm still doing the really hard thing. So anytime you have a pre-error, it's not go back a step in your approximations, but it is turn some dial down so that you get back to success and also know the clock is ticking. You're probably reaching the end of your session there. You want to start to wrap it up. So start to pay attention to these pre-errors in your training. Let me know what you're seeing. Um, you know, share some video over on the Facebook page. I think it's really important for us all to be talking about this and kind of talking about what it looks like in real time. Okay, and some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Helen who writes, reinforcement and arousal when your reinforcement is a necessary part of the behavior. I know this isn't necessarily your sport, but I have a question about managing arousal states in DISC. I have done a lot of work in agility and obedience, managing my dog's tendency for over-arousal largely by being very careful to choose reinforcers that complement a thinking brain. In agility, for example, my pre-routine often includes food, and the toy reward is often what my dog sees as a medium value. The disc is his second favorite reward after a ball, and he easily goes over threshold. I have literally lost the tips of fingers in toss and fetch. So far, I've been using Karen Overall's Take a Breath and Leslie McDevitt's off-switch games to help him remain calm at the beginning of our games and freestyle, but the longer we play, the higher he gets. It's amazing how high a dog can get in a two-minute freestyle round. So my question is, what else can I do to help him learn to manage his excitement? Any advice or insights? Helen, it's a great question, and truly, it's not a question I can answer really fully in this format, and I think you probably know that, that if there were like a two-sentence answer to this, you probably would have figured it out by now, but it comes back to actually working with this arousal and not against it. You have removed the arousal from the picture in your other sports by being really smart with your reinforcers. And I think that's wise. But when we get into a situation where the reinforcer is actually a part of the game, so disc is a good example, but so is like bite work, right? So so is biting the sleeve um, or the suit on a, on a helper or a decoy in sports like IGP and Mondio Ring, as well as, you know, probably things like sheep herding and other instinct sports. So You've removed the arousal from the other games. You've, you've just kind of controlled the arousal that can happen via your reinforcers in the other games. And I do think that's wise, but you need a different strategy when it comes to disc. I don't think it's about, um, I do think controlling the uh, arousal state before you go into the ring is probably smart because if you walk in with the dog at an eight, then the dog's going to be at that 10 much quicker. Whereas if this is a two minute routine, you want to walk in really low, right? You want to walk in at a really reasonable level um, as much as you can so that the dog doesn't spin up to that 10 super quickly. So I do think managing the arousal pre-run, pre-routine is a good idea. But in your training, you're going to be wanting to have conversations with your dog about fluency surrounding arousal. And that seems like it's missing from your plan here. Your plan has been, generally speaking, to bring that arousal state down, accept that the arousal state will be extremely high in DISC, and talk to the dog about what behaviors still have to remain fluent in order for them to get access to that DISC. We can teach them 
to think under arousal if we layer in the difficulty of the arousal i would be doing a whole lot of things like there is a disc present but i'm asking you to do 700 other things that you don't expect me to ask you to do and eventually i'll give you that disc as a payout uh there is a disc present but i'm asking you to eat food would be probably the first place i would begin and Again, I can't answer this completely fully. This would require probably private coaching to really, really dig into and get through, but that is where I think you should start. The next one is from Team Two Dog, who writes, do you feel that an adult dog's desire or need to gnaw on things is a need we should try to meet? If so, how? It seems like all the things that dogs like to gnaw on have potential safety concerns like rawhide, bones, wood, et cetera. So disclaimer, that everybody needs to do what feels safe to them. But yes, I do think this is a need that we need to meet. And I personally kind of weigh the cost benefit here and decide that those things are safe enough for my dogs to chew on to meet their chewing needs. Some dogs' teeth are not in good enough shape or just decent enough teeth to chew on actual hard bones. And when it comes to rawhide, I, I do tend not to use it, but I do use a lot of dried kind of natural treats. So like dried necks, bones, um, things like that. I do feed bully sticks. I mean, I give my dogs a lot of stuff to chew on and I don't worry a whole lot about the safety level. I obviously supervise them. I obviously pay attention to the dog's tendency. If I had a dog that was going to swallow a six inch bully stick, then I would put the bully stick in one of those bully buddy things so that he couldn't do that. If I have a dog that's going to break his molars on a frozen raw bone, because that's the quality his teeth are, then he's not going to have frozen raw bones. He's going to have a frozen topple instead. But in general, I look at the dog in front of me and I do try to meet that need. And I provide a lot of stuff for chewing. And it is, it makes sense that veterinarians recommend against all of this stuff because they only see the disasters that come in. They don't see my 25 year history of giving this stuff to my dogs without problem. Okay. And the next one comes from Lillian who writes, what basic agility equipment would you invest in for an at-home training setup with limited outdoor space and budget? It's really hard to answer this because it really depends on what you're doing in your agility work. For me, I think if you're going to compete, you probably need a set of weave poles for training. And it would be nice if you had a tunnel and it'd be nice if you had a couple of jumps. You probably don't have to have the contact equipment unless you're training running contacts. And those are, those are never cheap. So and they take up a lot of room. So probably that's not within your space or money budget. Um, so for me, it would be weave poles, a couple of jumps in a tunnel. Otherwise, just get started and kind of see what shows up and what you need. And last one this week comes from Emma, who writes, my 19-month intact male English shepherd has always been fairly bossy with other dogs, but I haven't been concerned that he would actually do damage. Initial introductions can be a bit tense, but if we do parallel walks, he quite quickly gets used to them. He still often is pushy or bossy, though. This weekend, we met a puppy out on a hike. My dog was initially grumbly at the puppy, not abnormal, but it continued longer, and he kept pushing into the puppy's space more than I liked. So I'd recall him, but he would be whining and interested in going back to the puppy. He still kept up with this grumbling and body posturing. The puppy was kind of in his face. When the puppy was in his face, my dog corrected the puppy, but not in his usual measured way. It was over the top. The puppy wasn't harmed, but scared. And both of the other owners and myself, of course, felt horrible. I'm working on muzzle conditioning and have some friends with puppies that we would like for him to meet. How should we go about meeting them or should we attempt it at all? I don't want him to give an unfair correction. Am I expecting too much from my dog? Thank you. So Emma, tough situation. 
my initial response is yes, you are expecting much. Um, your 19 month old intact male is saying that he's not appropriate with puppies. A lot of adult dogs are not appropriate with puppies. And a lot of those dogs are male, not all of them. And it's something that you probably need to accept. If I had a puppy, I would not be introducing him to your dog. Like full stop, it just wouldn't be allowed if I had a puppy. So what I think is important here is for you to curate your dog's experiences to be around dogs that don't care about him, are ignoring him, preferably are bigger than him, mostly females, and definitely work on that muzzle and dig into the remedial socialization content that we have here. And also know that just not all dogs are going to be dog social. And the, the level of aggression that that correction was that the dog showed to the puppy is about the fact that you let it go on for a really long time. The dog was very clear that he didn't want to be around that puppy, but he was still around it and it kept going and it kept going. And then he finally nailed the puppy. And we just don't want to put either him or the puppy in that situation. So I probably wouldn't have him around puppies. If you do, he's not interacting with the puppies. They're on leash, they're playing with each other, whatever, they're away from him. And I would really focus on some remedial socialization, get that muzzle work going and best of luck to you. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.